Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the I Save That podcast. This is Ramsey Nasrallah. I'm joined by Dr. Ken Symington, President-Elect for the Association for Vascular Access. This is the oral history of AVA edition of the podcast. And after we finish talking, you're going to get to listen to Suzanne Herbst, the founder of this association, walking you through the timeline of, of how how this association came to be, how the vascular access specialty was identified and, and then slowly defined and elevated uh, through her work. And um, Ken, you actually appear in this oral history that, that we're going to be hearing because through serendipity, we're both in upstate New York around the same time. It was crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, I was just thinking this morning when I woke up in anticipation of this, I can't remember the very moment that I first met Suzanne, uh, but uh, I do remember when I started working with her at, through patients, and uh, I got to tell you immediately, I was sort of, uh, I was totally hooked on her. Her penetrating blue eyes, her devotion to patients. She was just such a sweet, kind person, and I wanted to do everything I could to help her and help patients. And uh, that turned into being quite a project. We had did a vascular access symposium that first year, and I think 400 people came to it. It was wow. a huge success, you know, out of nowhere, out of the blue. And then after that, she got me hooked into doing other things with her and stuffing flyers for her at her house and in her garage and tripping over her large dog. You know, all these crazy things, this mom-pa operation, you know, it's, it's just amazing uh, memories of her. And I couldn't be happier to see that she's doing this and she deserves every bit of credit and recognition that she could possibly get. Yeah. It, uh, and, and speaking of credit and recognition, this, this uh, episode is the brainchild of Dr. Jack Ledun. Um, so hearing about the, the grassroots uh, inception uh, of how AVA came to be uh, to, you know, now we have thousands of members with uh, well north of a thousand people, clinicians at our conference in Columbus, uh, that all started somewhere. And it started with Suzanne Herbst, who we will turn it over to now. Um, this episode uh, has been uh, made possible by sponsorship from BD, uh, a great uh, partner to vascular access and to AVA. For more information on BD, please visit BD. Dot com. And now we'll give you Suzanne Herbst and the oral history of the Association for Vascular Access. I'm, I'm going to just start with uh, where I was in 1965. I was a senior in nursing school, and I had diagnosed a tumor on my thyroid. And so I had thyroidectomy, positive tumor, um, and my first IV <laughs> it was on me. I never thought that would ever happen. And then the day of graduation from the School of Nursing, I w went to um, high school senior ball with Phil, my, my wonderful new husband. And um, in the day of graduation, the night of the senior ball, I had extreme pain. Uh, and so I didn't do the all-nighter thing that you do when you're crazy and graduating and um, so it turned out that th they figured I had uh, needed an appendectomy and so I said uh -uh, I'm not mm -mm, I'm going I'm going to get my diploma and then we'll discuss this so again with the surgeon uh, we had a discussion and I had my number two vascular access or IV and those are ancient in 1965, both of those. In 1966, shortly, I have one sibling, my brother Herb, and um, 
he was diagnosed with leukemia when he was 24. And um, I was going to do all this stuff and go to Europe. And, um, but we found out he had leukemia and he was getting his doctorate at Columbia. And it was like two weeks before his wedding that he found out all of this. Anyway, I didn't go to Europe, but I, my brother and I talked and I, I just traveled through the, the United States and kept in touch with my brother. And then I remember coming back to Syracuse where he was being treated at upstate. And um, I, all I could remember was how bad his arms looked from all the intravenous drugs at that time uh, for leukemia. And it, you know, it was, it was awful. His arms just looked awful. So anyway, um, fortunately, um, a few months later, my brother died, and, and, and praise God, I could be with him when he went to God. So uh, the thing I had the uh, great thing to do was to, I went to California, and um, I loved it, and after my brother died, I, I left town. Um, I got out of Dodge because it was too painful for me. And so I went to California, went back to uh, San Francisco, working in critical care. <clears throat> and the director of the critical care unit asked me if I'd like a job in research. I went, research? A nurse in research? <laughs> and so um, I started working. It was called Riverside Research Institute. And it was the, east, the West uh, Division of the Eastern East, Research Institute in New York. So we started, and one of our first projects was to uh, look at different polymers, look at different um, pieces of plastic, so to speak, and see what would be the most biocompatible with the body. And I actually put these pieces of um, different polymers into rabbit's ears so that you know, I could take them out and see which ear got really red and inflamed and so on. And um, so I ran the Animal Research Institute there in California, and um, I, I, I couldn't do it again because I was working with the sheep and dogs. And, um, but I had this opportunity to work with some wonderful engineers. And we went to Seattle and met Dr. Hickman and Dr. Broviak, who were developing catheters to stay in people for long periods of time. And it was, we, they wanted um, a way to secure the catheter in place, and so they, they, they found out um, they wanted some kind of material on the catheter itself. So we looked at Dacron, and we looked at different materials that would uh, adhere to the subcutaneous tunnels and um, secure the catheters in place. And um, there's a Hickman catheter named after Dr. Hickman and a Broviac catheter named after Jack Broviac. And then I worked with Dr. Swan and Gantz 
to develop critical care catheters again to uh, look at how long you could keep them in and and so inside of this incredible mentorship of these brilliant scientists and I had the opportunity to work with them so my my research just kept moving on and um, I started working for uh, Elza Corporation and it was um, Alexandro Zaffaroni who was president of Syntex Mexicana and he raised a, a whole bunch of money when he was making the birth control devices and again um, I was asked to join that group because they were making a portable infusion device and it was um, called the Elzo Research Medical Device and it was a small pump because people needed the pump for insulin for some of the drugs we were learning were better given for hematology hematologic problems um, if they were given over a period of time and so I worked with that and um, it was called the Armed Infuser and again it was there were no batteries or anything like that in this device it was a balloon and we had to work with the engineers to keep the um, pressure in the balloon constant so that you, you just have this little piece of plastic that was like a turnkey. You turn it on, and then the uh, fluids could be delivered through this balloon on a consistent basis. So um, I had a lot of background on pump development, the portable infusion pump that was developed by Dr. Ensminger in uh, Michigan. And um, then I... Uh, started working with um, home infusion because I knew a lot about the pumps. We had developed the first volumetric pump with the Research Institute. And so um, these pharmacists from Stanford started Stanford Home Treatment Services. And so they were mixing up the brews, the TPN in their garages and um, Stanford wasn't interested in doing that kind of thing. So um, I, I said, well, you know, I can do that. I know the pump, no problem. Um, and, you know, got to know and work with the varying newness of pumps as they came along. And then, uh, so I got into home infusion doing total parental nutrition on many of the people that's all they were using and I suggested that you know they could be giving chemotherapy drugs uh, through these pumps they could be giving um, in, infection uh, control antibiotics yeah so um, I, I so I within oh and the HIV pump was was just running wild in San Francisco. And I had people that just wouldn't come to work with me because they didn't want to see these people with AIDS. So I just started um, doing 24 seven 
going to these people's homes and um, one of the things that would would happen is I, I called it catheter abuse and that was an AIDS patient would go into the hospital and have a fever and everybody they all did mm. and infection control people just wanted to pull the line and they did and and oftentimes that was the only line we had left like so I had two of my best friends were were getting sicker and sicker and what kind of lines are you talking about um, these were tunneled catheter oh. supports okay. the Groschamp catheter and so I would get really upset because the, in many cases that was also the only line we had available with people with Kaposi sarcoma everywhere and infection control wanted to pull that line and then we had no place to put it because of all the lesions from the Kaposi sarcoma so I had two friends um, that were dying, but I was ministering to them, but I was seeing patients 24-7, and I ended up um, in the critical cardiac unit with a severe chest pain, <laughs> and um, I was in San Francisco, and I said, well, I'll stay in the right-hand lane, and I'll drive to my internist who was in Redwood City, Menlo Park area, near Stanford. Yeah. And so I, I drove down very, very, you know, <clears throat> he took, he, he did an EKG and his wife took me right to the hospital. So my friends, my two friends said, Suze, <laughs> are you gonna die before us? <laughs> and I said, oh, I said, uh, no. I well, uh, yeah, I could. <laughs> so the cardiac cast showed that my heart was fine, but um, the cardiologist that they sent me to said, you just can't do this. You can't be doing twenty four seven because I was be on call, and I'd I'd hire someone and get them up to speed on all the things you needed in home infusion. And the next thing I know, the one one was at the person's house, and so she was in the bathroom and she had gotten blood on her hands and she was going nuts, you know. So she she left. And then somebody else, I hired her, and then she got pregnant, she left. And so I was doing call 24-7, like I said. And my cardiologist said, um, no, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do it. So I went on disability for like six months. I mean, he would not let me, he, he, he mm -mm, Susanna, you can't do this. You can't keep doing that. And um, so, but I st stuck with my friends who had these lines in there, it was Gare and Bobby. And uh, Gare said to me, um, Suze, you gotta do something about this because he had gone to the um, um, hospital, he had a fever and they pulled this line and we were using that for pain control, for morphine and for his compulsive sarcoma. And I got, to his house and I was livid that they would just pull the line and have no options for that. At the same time, I was doing research at MD Anderson in Houston and they sent me to the hematology meetings in Helsinki. 
And while I was there, I the one of the things that was hard to do is you had to cut down to put a, sil a soft silicone catheter in. It, you know, you couldn't put it really through anything or around anything. Anyway, it was this, it looked like a, a fishing pole, a spool. And it fed the cath the catheter was on a wire in this spool. And then I called it the bayonet would come out of this end. And you'd, you'd stick the bayonet, 18 gauge, pretty large, slotted needle and start turning the the round part of the where the catheter was coiled and it would go right through and into the body. I went brilliant because people were doing cut downs and been doing terrible jobs of doing cut downs. <laughs> and so um, I brought that back to MD Anderson and I said, um, you know, can we try this? And so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And um, Dr. Freireich, who was the head of the leukemia uh, hematology groups and looking a lot into AIDS and HIV. So I said, uh, can we try this? So like, I, I kept practicing on these arms that they were making, you know. To, what, what year was this about? Um, 1968, 70, 1970-ish. Okay. And um, so he let, Dr. Freirich let me put in the first line. And so I did. And um, it was very su successful. And um, uh, so I put in the, the first pick line in the United States as a nurse. There were docs that would put them here and there, but they didn't you know, they put in two a year, maybe, and you needed some skill. You, you needed to put in more than just one. Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then I brought them back, and we started using them, and then manufacturers got involved with them and improved the technique of n not just the polymer itself, but the ways you could um, put the through the body without putting it through this 18-gauge bayonet. And so um, then I did my disability <laughs> and recovered, but, you know, at the same time, I, I was just so so excited about these catheters. And um, I would I stayed in touch with Dr. Hickman and Dr. Brovac, and Dr. Swan and Gantz wanted not just one lumen, they wanted one or two or three lumens, and they wanted the balloon on the catheter. We had to figure out how to how to do all that, and I worked with these wonderful engineers. And um, that, so here I'm, I'm watching this abuse take place. Like, you'd, you'd have a patient come home from the hospital, and they t they'd say they just got stuck like five times by the same person, you know, and they never had another person that was up to speed. So I did a survey on um, 370 uh, patients and clinicians who put these lines in, and most of the clinicians put lines in like twice a year. <laughs> Again, you know, you got 
all these physicians, they were doing them. It, it didn't really become a nursing specialty until I could kind of prove something. And so um, I just saw this abuse over and over and over. And so I was one of the founders of the Oncology Nursing Society. And we, I wrote the first guidelines in the for uh, the oncology nursing group, and um, we had our. I thought we had our protocols down pretty, pretty consistent, and so on. But the rest of the world didn't have that, and so I wrote a letter. I was coming back from an oncology meeting, and again witnessing all kinds of abuse, people being stuck way too many times. And I know what happens. I was working on my doctorate at the time, and I understand that, you know, you just can't keep repeating sticking someone because they're going to vasoconstrict, they're going to get fearful, they're going to get, you know, they're going to be more, have morbid fear of an IV being started. And, um, so I wrote a letter, I had this idea, if I could get everyone that was putting these lines in, like in most of the major hospitals in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I started, it was called the Bay Area Vascular Access Committee, BayVac. What year? 1979. Okay, BayVac. BayVac. <laughs> This was your idea to put together a, a, a go say it again. This was your idea to put together a group of who? Of of people that were putting in lines and dealing with nurses, doctors, nurses, nurses. primarily. The doctors just felt they knew what they were doing, um, and so uh, so I wrote this letter, and I, I still have it, and I wrote down what what I saw as. Uh, benefits of bringing everyone together that was a piece of the pie including um, manufacturing at the time because they were coming out with things but they weren't listening to the nurses that were at the bedside and the consumers were very important to me that I just didn't want to see any more abuse and so I, I wrote this letter and I showed what my mission was to bring everybody that was a piece of the pie, pharmacists, because they could change the um, pH and the, the, the fluids that was going in so that it wouldn't burn the veins so badly. And so uh, that day, 15 people came um, from Presbyterian Hospital, St. Luke's Children's Hospital, Oakland, um, Stanford, of course. Where did you have it, Menlo Park? In Menlo Park, okay. that's where I was living, yeah. And so I, I wrote, I was on the airplane, and I, I wrote this idea down, and then sent it out. And the people that said they that couldn't come were, they had reasons, you know. They were the 15 they, people San Francisco-based, or? San Francisco-based. Okay. Um, and so there were, I invited, I, I wrote the letter to oncology nurses primarily because they were the ones doing IVs. 
This special episode of I Save That podcast is made possible by BD. BD is a global medical technology company that is advancing the world of health by improving medical discovery, diagnostics, and the delivery of care. For more information, please visit bd.com. So we met at Presbyterian Hospital. Like I said, 15 people came. But one of the things that I had learned is that, you know, if you if you bring some food, people will come. <laughs> so I, I made this great big thing of ziti, and I, I, I and, and said food will be there available, yeah. whatever. So anyway, we started meeting on a monthly basis and coming up and changing. Uh, I, I had written down five of my goals. I said, you know, we all have to be on the same page, and our consumers you know, need to understand that they do not have to put up with this abuse. Okay, so that happened, and um, then we named it Bay Van after the VAC, after the committee. Then we, um, Bay Area Vascular Access Network, I call it. And so it was networking everyone that I could get my hands on to, to come. Well, the FDA it was just starting the central venous catheter working group, and when they looked at their statistics, they found that the uh, the uh, failure rates were due to healthcare professionals not having enough training and teaching, and never heard about it in schools, uh, nursing or or medicine or. But pharmacists were very well <laughs> you know, enrolled in this kind of thing. So um, every month, I had a oh, I had a good friend who was a caterer, and she would make awesome things, and people would come and eat and talk. And so fifteen came, then thirty, then thirty-five, then forty, and then I get a call from the the person who's heading up the Central Venus Catheter Working Group and had just gone over the statistics and his name was Dr. Walter Scott. And he and his nurse uh, practitioner came to San Francisco to one of our meetings and then I said, I want to be on the Central Venus Catheter Working Group. Well, you know, you can sit in the, what do they call that, the gallery. (laughs) But, you know, I I wouldn't have a seat at the table um, so I went to Washington and I sat down in the gallery and kept looking at this name tag in front of this chair and it says Suzanne Herbst and I went holy smokes I could sit at the big table with all those big guys you know because <laughs> they were primar- <coughs> primarily men what year are we just for the timeline early 80s yes so Bay of Acts 79, Bay Van, a couple years later. Right. And then um, then I got asked to be on the Central Venus Catheter Working Group. And I said, you know, you have to come to some of our meetings. So then I, I remember wanting to have my vision of the first meeting, like a convention, <laughs> Ava, um, you know, if we had 50 people, that would be wonderful. But what we did was we had tables around 
this ballroom or this room at the Holiday Inn in San Francisco. And I remember writing my personal check <laughs> to cover the, that's the space. And we had um, Jesco, it was um, George Cinco, and he had a pediatric catheter, silicone, that you could put in these little kids. Um, and there were Menlo Park, I mean, it was, it was called um, Menlo something. And they, they were coming out with some different new, new, newness, new technology. And so that I, you know, I think they spent like $25 to have a tabletop. <laughs> and so we had like 50 people come that first year and it was only from um, 12 p.m. We did it in the afternoon so that you, 12 to 6, something like that. So people getting off at 3 or 4 could, could come and um, that's, that was the first the, the first meeting, general meeting and then um, it just kept it just kept growing and catching on and people would call and say, Could we join? And and it was Southern California, Orange County. Josie Stone called me up and said, um, we'd like we'd like to start a network in our area and she came up to to uh, San Francisco and I remember that the the rooms were shrinking and people were sitting on the floors <laughs> and that and then it's, took off from there and then so the second network was in Southern California yes Orange County okay um San Diego and then doctor um one of the docs from MD Anderson went to Utah Salt Lake City and he started a group there and so it was like okay now we gotta call it NAVAN National Association what year was this it was, it was like 84, 85. Okay. Um, and it was amazing because I just felt that something was happening, something, something that was really grabbing people, you know, to keep coming and making phone calls to us. And, and so then we called it NAVAN, National Association. And one of the board members, we had our very first board, it gave me a globe, and I laughed, you know. <laughs> International? I don't think so. <laughs> so <laughs> not possible. No, not at all. No, We're lucky to be in, you know, as big as we were getting in California, you know. So um, then we changed it to NAVAN, and then it ultimately got changed to AVA because it's, it's all over the world now. So let's uh, let's go back. So Navan, mid eighties. When let's start. So you're at you're at Navan. You went national. So let's say when it became able. We'll talk a little bit about what you were doing. There's a little bit of a big jump there to like. Oh, I moved back from San Fran from San Francisco back to uh, Syracuse, New York. That's where I was born and raised. Mm -hmm. And I I kept hearing about these interventional radiologists and uh, what they were doing 
and so on. And so I stayed as president for as long as I could. Um, yeah, what time? Of Navian. What year are we? Late 80s? Yeah, I think, I think Ava came up in 92, 93. They changed Navian to Ava. Uh-huh. And were you involved with that change? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, I just said... One of the things, Jack, that I... You, you've heard me say this many times, but I, I work for an incredible boss. You know, at my license plates, CEO for God. And um, we actually had a group of people who would pray before these meetings. And um, anyway, so I came back to Syracuse, and uh, I got a call from Ken Symington at Krauss Hospital in Syracuse. And he wanted to put together a, a workshop day about vascular access and explain to what interventional radiologists had to offer in terms of imaging and visualizing. And um, at that time, there was a big war between the surgeons and these interventional radiologists that wanted to you know, start doing it because they could see what they were doing as opposed to blind, you know. Were they using fluoroscopy at the time, do you know? No, it was, um, trying to think of when, because I, I worked on that, the first um, ultrasound thing. Dynax? Yeah, but then I went to their suite and um, the interventional radiologist showed me what they could see and how you know they could tra they could actually trace the vessel rather than shoot blindly. Now, were they using ultrasound or fluoro at that time? Do you remember? I don't. Okay. Okay. I, I was just learning about what they could do. Yeah. You know? And so um, I remember that um, Ken got me involved with Cross Hospital, and we would have these meetings and. The, the CEO would never show up um, for these meetings and they started at 6 in the morning and so we could plan how, how to not convert so much as to if the technology is there why not use it rather than have a surgeon put in two a, a year you know I, it just so um, I remember having the, the everybody got a, a folder and my parents stuffed the folders with information. And, um, you know, Ken came over to the house, and my mom and dad were so helpful. My, my mom and dad founded the Leukemia Society in central New York after my brother died. And so they, they really got involved more and more with um, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And when did you move back to uh, Syracuse? 91. 91. So that's... That's pretty much it, unless you have some questions for me. Okay, so at this point it was the Association for Vascular Access. We moved back in 91, 92, 93, it's AVA now. Yes. Which means we're 25 years into being AVA. And how many, uh, about how many members did you have at that time? Maybe 250. Of members, almost exclusively nurses? Yes. Okay. And, and <clears throat> interventional radiology. <clears throat> Okay, at this point, were you holding, when did you start holding annual conferences? 
around then, the early 90s? Yeah. And you would move it around to different cities? No. Oh, oh okay. No, there was, um, I would, Marsha Ryder, I, I hired her, so to speak, as uh, director of education, and she had a lot of background from Davis Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, you know, I had helped develop the first ports, the you know, a lot of the catheters and such. And so I knew generally about, so I, I would give a general overview of vascular access, and then she would go more into the pick lines. And um, we, the two of us, went from city to city. And it was supported by Menlo Care. It was called Menlo Care, and I'm trying to think of, Dwayne Hardy was our first financial um, treasurer of the board. Um, and it, it, it was called Menlo Care. And then, and they supported, they supported us for a while, but you know, my, my checkbook came getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower because I, I was ready to take a risk. And uh, I, knew, I knew I was doing something right because people were just showing up and making phone calls and talking to me and I was talking to them and they did not work with me somewhere else and I'd go wherever they wanted me. What's your impression about how the BAVAC developed into AVA and how it's related to vascular access in the United States today? Well, I think that just from the very, very first meeting, that when we just called it a, a committee, um, that we started bringing vascular access more into the real world of education. But it still isn't in nursing schools and medical schools and so on. And today, I, I think we're getting there. I, I think that um, the, well, you helped so much with that, Jack. You, you, um, you made it so real. I mean, when I first saw some of your presentations, I was like, you know, you, you just, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the sonograms were set up so that if you were right-handed, you know, you could put the sonogram on the right side. And you, you have a video where you, <laughs> you took the bed out, turned it around <laughs> in case somebody had a left, you wanted a left side orientation or whatever. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it was just yeah. a riot. Yeah. And I, and I just, um, I went, gosh, he's got it. He has got it. You know, he, he just knows it. And he is aware that there's a there's one way of doing it and all the others that, that your mother would say, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I, I, I just, uh, for me, I, I really still get frustrated when, you know, here's Krauss that I helped set up their intervention radiology group, and Ken Symington left and went to outside of Spokane. But, you know, we, we just became really, really good friends for, you know, before he moved back. And when he told me he was moving 
to the Northwest, I was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so how do you feel about, say, the overall state of vascular access today, like it's recognition, education, where it is, compared to where um, it started? Oh, my goodness. It's, uh, it's, it's moving. Again, I think with that, the, with the boards, the foundation, um, the support that we're getting more and more, that the education is coming. Um, one of the things I also wanted to make sure of is that we all use the same terminology. I mean, everything was a Hickman catheter, you know. <laughs> but I think that I think we're we're moving in the right direction. I recently, over the past year, have had some very bad experiences with IVs, and um, softened. You know, they. It, we still have some a lot of work to do, and we will do it. You have been listening to the oral history of the Association for Vascular Access as told by its founder, Suzanne Herbst. Thank you, Suzanne, for your time and your decades of work in advancing vascular access. And Ava would like to give a special thank you to BD for its sponsorship of this special episode of the I Save That podcast. AVA members can listen to the entire unedited history of AVA by going to avainfo.org slash podcast. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to podcast at avainfo.org. Thank you. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.